If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Acts? The book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 22. We're beginning a new series, a four-week series. Uh, and this, is, this verse right here is the premise of it all. Uh, we will also be in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, chapter 16, uh, from various translations. And so you can kind of bookmark that as well. Again, that, uh, the key verse or our text is Acts, chapter 13, uh, verse 22. When I read it, I'll read it from the New Living. You can read it from whatever translation you have this morning. Listen, most everyone you know who, who, who's ever been in Sunday school or uh, anybody ever been at a vacation Bible school, a VBS, or have taken your kids, right? It, almost everyone who's ever been in Sunday school or at a VBS as a child knows the familiar story of David and Goliath. How many of you have heard the story of David and Goliath? I mean, we all know David as the young shepherd boy who slew a giant with one small stone and a simple slingshot. We also know that this brave shepherd boy, he grew up to be the great king of Israel, but there's much more to David's life than just slaying giants. See, much is written in our Bibles about King David. In fact, more has been written about King David than any other person in the Bible other than Jesus Christ himself. In the Old Testament, there are actually 66 chapters written about David. And in the New Testament, there are 59 references to this great man. And we can read about King David's life in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings and 1st Chronicles, but we can also glean insight into what he thought and felt by reading many of the Psalms. Anybody love reading the Psalms? Being encouraged, knowing that others have gone through what we're going through. And we know that 73 Psalms are actually attributed to King David. And so, shepherd boy, king, mighty warrior, musician, poet, sinner, saint, all of these words describe David, but perhaps the most captivating words about David himself were spoken by our Father God. These words are inscribed in our text this morning, and for this series, like I said, this is our premise. And so the Bible tells us that God removed Saul as king and replaced him with a little shepherd boy named David. And in Acts 13, verse 22, God says, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything, say everything, he will do everything I want him to. I'm going to say it again. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to. If you can stand, stand with me, let's pray. Ask God to bless our time. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for how you plan divine appointments and how you just lay things out. You know exactly who was going to be here this morning, and you know exactly the word that we need to hear. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to share this new series on King David after God's own heart. And I just pray that it would touch people's hearts, that it would get us thinking, I pray that it would cause us to surrender a little more to you and that, Lord, we would recognize that you are with us through every single season of life. And so, Lord, bless our time together. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. So King David's life was a portrait of success and failure. And his whole life highlights the fact that he was far 
from perfect. And yet, God calls him a man after his own heart. So what was there about David's heart that, that made him different, that distinguished him from his contemporaries, setting him apart as God's man? A man in whom God could, could chose to confide, sharing both his secrets and times of intimate communion. I mean, what did God see when he looked at David's heart? And how do we become a man or woman after God's own heart? Well, to help answer those questions, I want to spend the next couple of weeks uh, getting to know the heart of King David. And perhaps in the process, you and I will get to know the heart of God a little bit better. Now listen, the story of David begins not on a battlefield with Goliath, but on the ancient hillsides of Israel. As a silver-bearded prophet ambles down a, a narrow trail and a, a heifer lumbers behind him and the, the town ahead is Bethlehem. And the prophet, as you may know, is called Samuel and the story is told in 1 Samuel 16. You might want to turn there if you're not already there. We're going to refer to it several times. The story is told in 1 Samuel 16, so if you have a Bible, go for it, open it, open the Bible app, or it will be on the screens as we go along. But before we get to the story, let me give you a little bit of background. See, at this point in the story, King Saul, who was Israel's first king, isn't the king he used to be. The scriptures, sadly, they record that he's actually grown prideful and arrogant. How many of you know that those two things will separate you from God? In fact, we know that Saul has openly defied and disobeyed God, and Saul's very sad and downward spiral from saint to sinner has left the prophet Samuel absolutely heartbroken. See, the prophet Samuel had mentored Saul. He had tried to teach Saul to follow God's path with all of his heart, but Saul's heart had grown hard, and so God decides that it's time for a change. And then in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, the Bible says, the Lord says to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. And so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. And so the prophet Samuel, he walks the trail to Bethlehem. And his stomach churns with all of these thoughts as he, as he journeys on his way because he's, he knows that it's hazardous to anoint a new king while the old one still sits on the throne. Unlike Saul, Samuel was obedient. And so he journeyed to Bethlehem, a, a seemingly insignificant town nestled in the foothills uh, some six miles from Jerusalem. And his arrival turns the heads of the townsfolk, and it actually causes quite a stir. See, there were problems in the palace. Say problems. There were problems in the palace which made the people in the countryside uneasy. See, genuine fear had stretched across the land at that time, and you can clearly see it reflected in the immediate reaction of, of the Bethlehem's in inhabitants. And the people said, what, what is Samuel doing here? Why has he come to Bethlehem? What's wrong? What's happening? See, they, they don't know why Samuel was there, and so they're fearful of the unknown. Do you come in peace, they might ask. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verse 5, Samuel replies, yes, 
in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Samuel was on a mission. Samuel then invites these local people, including a man named Jesse and his sons, to join him. And listen, we know that Samuel is also a priest, and so he consecrates them for the coming sacrifice. And the following scene actually has kind of a dog show feel to it. A dog show. See, as it turns out, Jesse brings all seven, seven of his sons with him to participate in the sacrifice to the Lord and the feast to follow. Then in 1 Samuel 16, 6, go there. The Bible says when they arrived, Samuel took one, took one look at Eliab and thought, wow, surely this is the Lord's anointed. I added the wow, by the way. Like, hey, this must be the one. Now, Samuel didn't say it out loud, but I'm sure that's what he was thinking. Why? Because Eliab looked the part. He looked like the type of person that would normally be chosen to be king. And I mean, no doubt he was tall and impressive. He looked like a real warrior. And later, Eliab joins Israel's armies and marches off to war. And so Samuel is greatly impressed. But God isn't. So the show continues. And then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of, uh, of Samuel like come and stroll by. But in Samuel, uh, but in that uh, chapter 16 of uh, verse 8, Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Go to verse 9. In verse 9, Je Jesse summons uh, Shemiah, but Samuel said, Neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons that he actually brought, that he presented to the prophet Samuel, and, and, and you know, led by God, we know that Samuel rejected all of them. Samuel had examined the boys one by one. Almost like canines on a leash, the, the seven sons of Jesse, they strut their stuff before the prophet, but all seven fall short. Now keep in mind, none of these guys even know what they're strutting for. None of them know what they've come to be shown off for, what they're competing for. And so I think they might have been a little bit confused, maybe a little bit creeped out. Why are we walking in front of this dude like this? Like, why is he checking us out this way? Listen, what does the prophet of God want? They may have asked. And Samuel probably had discouragement and maybe a little frustration all over his face because one by one they were disqualified. And to him, they looked apart. The to him, they looked like they could be chosen. To him, they looked like they could be the next king of Israel. But suddenly, say suddenly, in the midst of this parade of possibilities, God whispers a reminder to Samuel in verse 7. Verse 7 right there. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things, at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. Crosspoint, aren't you glad this morning? that God says this? 
Aren't you tired of, of our culture's shallow and superficial picking system of, of maybe yourself being graded according to the inches of your waist or the square footage of your house or the color of your skin or the make of your car or the, the label of your clothing, the size of your office, the, the, the presence of your diplomas, the absence of pimples. I mean, we grow weary of being judged by our outward appearance and here God says he does does not look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. We grow weary of being judged by our outward appearance. Hard work is sometimes ignored. Devotion goes unrewarded. The boss chooses cleavage over character. The teacher picks pets, uh, pet students instead of prepared ones. Parents show off their favorite sons and leave the runs out of the field. At least that's what happened to David. And just to be sure, the prophet Samuel takes a quick head count. And in verse 11, he asks Jesse, are these all your sons? All the sons that you have? Now listen, I'm sure the question caused Jesse to, to squirm like Cinderella's stepmother. Uh, but then in verse 11, he responds, I still have the youngest son. He is taking care of of the sheep. And that's where we find David this morning. He's in, in the pasture with the flock, plain and simple, but soon to be chosen for his heart. Listen, in time, David will go on to slay giants and conquer kingdoms. The Son of God will one day be called the Son of David. The greatest psalms ever written, maybe some of them that we still sing today, will actually flow from the pen of David. One day we'll call him king, warrior, minstrel, giant killer. But on this day, he wasn't even invited to dinner with the family. He's just forgotten, inconsequential, performing a menial, stinky, dirty task in a tiny backwoods town. Now listen, the word translated youngest, say youngest. The word translated young in, youngest in this verse implies more than just birth order. It actually suggests rank, like smallest, least significant, or last place. I'm the youngest of 13. I learned at a very young age there is a pecking order. There are things that you can do and that you can't do as the youngest. And if you don't know yet, you're about to find out could be good or bad. Some of you are, are feeling a little damaged this morning by that process. Maybe you can sometimes relate to that, actually. I, I, like I said, I'm the youngest of 13, but lucky for us, God doesn't see what we see. See, God doesn't judge by our outward appearances. God looks at your heart. Now, when Jesse sent for David, Samuel saw this gangly and small teenager enter the house smelling like sheep and looking like he desperately needed a bath. But God saw something more. God saw something deeper beneath the surface. God saw David's heart. And so in verse 12, go there first. First Samuel 16, verse 12, the Lord whispered to Samuel, this is the one. This is the one. Anoint him. 
And then the Bible says in verse 13, so as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil and the Spirit of the Lord powerfully came upon David from that day on. Listen, David didn't understand it at this time. But his life was forever to be changed because of this moment. It's because God saw what no one else saw. And so the question begs to be asked, what exactly did God see? Listen, Scripture doesn't say, but it, but it hints at it every step of the way. And as we look at this story, I see three qualities this morning of David's heart that God certainly saw as well. And I want to give them to you real quick this morning. Three qualities of David's heart that made David a man after God's own heart. Number one, David had a, a hardworking heart. How many of you know someone that works hard? They just work hard. You might even use the expression, they work their fingers to the bone. They are hardworking. Maybe you yourself, you know what it is to work hard. Listen, although Jesse had seven other sons, David was the only one out in the fields on that day. And being low man on the totem pole meant that David was expected to do the jobs that the rest of the family didn't want to. That's what David did. Day after day without complaint. And see, the Bible is full of commands for us to work, and, and God even views work worthy of its own command. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 21, the Bible says that six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And listen, we really like that second part of verse 21. Most people love, would love to work less and rest more, but the emphasis on the, day, on the one day of rest may cause us to miss out on the command that we have to work six days you shall labor. God says it right there. And so whether you work at home or in the marketplace, your work matters to God and it matters to society too. See, one reason I think God commands us to work is that we need each other. How do you mean, Pastor Freddie? See, sheep need a shepherd. Cities need plumbers. Nations need soldiers. Listen, stoplights break and bones break. We need people to repair the first and to set the second set of others so that they heal properly. Another reason I think God wants us to work is because He is a worker. Not only was God working the first six days of creation, but Jesus once said in John chapter 5 and verse 17, My Father is always, say always, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And so if you work hard, you're like your heavenly father. You're like Jesus if you work hard. See, God doesn't take a working day off. That's what the Sabbath was, was for. He, he never calls in sick. He doesn't go on vacation and leave the universe to run itself. God is always working. How many of you are glad that God is always working? Because on that day when you needed him, when maybe everyone else was beyond your call, beyond your reach, you called on Jesus and he was on the scene. And it's because God works hard and he doesn't take a day off. Listen, so this morning, whether you log on, whether you punch in, whether you lace up for the day, you actually imitate God when you work. And God saw that David had a, hard, a, a heart for hard work. 
But, but David also had a humble heart. Let's look there. David had a humble heart. After Samuel anointed David's head with oil, the, the historian Josephus says, Samuel whispered in his ear the meaning of the symbol, meaning you will be king next. What do you do in a situation like that? What if someone were to whisper in your ear that you were next up? I mean, it doesn't come along every other day that you're chosen and anointed to be the next ruling king of God's people. I mean, the, that would mess with, mess with some of our minds this morning. But what did King David do? What did the shepherd boy David do, rather? I'm happy to report that David did not go down to Walmart or Target to try on some crowns. He didn't even slip in to your local Burger King and try on one of those paper crowns just to get his size. He didn't order a new set of business cards telling the printer to change the wording from shepherd to king-elect. See, David didn't shine up the chariot and race through the streets of Bethlehem yelling, Hello, I'm God's choice. You're looking at Saul's replacement. I am the king. In fact, let me show you what David did after he was anointed king. Because if I, when I tell you what David did, it's going to tell you a lot about why God chose him in the first place. As the story continues, King Saul seeks out an assistant and someone recommends David. And so in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 19, the Bible says that Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. I want you to get that this morning. We, we miss that a lot of times. Uh, I, I don't want you to miss those last three words. David, after being anointed as the next king of Israel, he went right back to the sheep. And then in the next chapter, listen, follow this. Even after going to work for King Saul, we read in 1 Samuel 17, if you jump there just at verse 15, 1 Samuel 17, 15 says that David went back and forth. And so he commuted. David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And so the next anointed king of Israel is still tending his father's flock. When you have a heart like David's, that's what you do. See, that was his job, and, and David was faithful to do it, and so it made no difference that Samuel had anointed him with oil or that Saul had appointed him as his personal assistant. Nothing was beneath him. He was humble. And so young King David, he didn't expect any special treatment. He didn't demand or respect or brag about his position. No, he just went back to humbly tend sheep. I think that's one of the reasons he was a man after God's own heart. See, David was always approachable. Say always. Always approachable. Always hardworking. Always faithful in the little things. And David had a humble heart before God and man, and we should too. Finally, we're going to end with this. David had a hallelujah heart. Say that with me. Hallelujah heart. Hallelujah. Now, Pastor Freddie, what in the world is a hallelujah heart? I know you Pentecostals like to get loud and you sometimes shout hallelujah, but a hallelujah heart? What do you mean by that? Well, do you know what else David was doing when he was out in those fields all day long? I love this. Don't miss this. 
when he wasn't tending the sheep, David was making worship music to God. See, David spent his days tending sheep and looking up to heaven, writing worship songs about his heavenly father. In fact, that's actually why King Saul sent for David. At this point in his life, King Saul had wrestled with depression and anger. In fact, the Bible says that King Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit. But as the Victorian playwright William Congreve famously said, music has charms to soothe the savage beast. And listen, worship music goes way beyond that because at the center of worship music is the one that we worship. And as he played on his harp and as he came up with a tune, we know that David was thinking about his heavenly father. And it was because of that talent, because of that expression, because of that hallelujah heart that Saul chose him to come. So when King Saul wanted a musician to play soothing music for him, whenever he, he felt troubled, he called on Jesse. He called on Jesse to send his son. 1 Samuel 16, 18, one of Saul's attendants told him that one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, this is talking about David, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, he has good judgment, he is also fine look, a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. David's passion for praise and worship earned him a place in the king's palace. Listen, I get it, we're not all harpists. I get it, we're not all psalm writers like David, but that doesn't mean we can't have a heart of worship. Besides, God wants those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That means as you worship God, you are using your head and your heart. Your head and your heart, your whole being. And the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I love and value worship. I think Martin Luther was exactly right when he wrote, next to the word of God, music deserves a high place. And God seems to have cast his vote in favor of worship too. In his book, the Bible, the longest of all the 66 books in the Bible is dedicated to the hymns of the Hebrews, the book of Psalms. Worship team, would you come? I mean, when was the last time you sang your heart out to God? Did you worship him in church this morning or did you just stand there? Did you, have you ever worshiped him alone in your car or do you just drive, go through the motions? Have you ever worshiped him in the shower? Listen, never mind how beautiful or how pitiful you may sound to yourself and others. Sing out to Jesus. Shout to the Lord. If all you can do is shout, shout. Lift up your hallelujahs to God. God sees your heart. Listen, you're not auditioning for the worship team. You're not auditioning for the church choir. You're actually making melody with your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, just like King David. Listen, God loves a heart that is brimming with hallelujahs. King David, for all his failures, was also a man after God's own heart. And while others may measure your waist size or your wallet size, not God, he examines your heart. When God looked at David's heart that day, he saw what no one else saw. He saw a hardworking, humble, hallelujah-filled heart.
a God-seeking heart. And the question I pose to you that I want you to leave with today, when God looks at you, what does he see in your heart? What kind of heart do you have? I don't say that, I don't say that to discourage you this morning. I say that to challenge you. Because some of you are hardworking. And some of you are, are humble in your, in your process, in your day-to-day. But I want to encourage you to have those things and more, to also have that hallelujah heart that whether like Patty, you use your talent for Jesus, you paint for Jesus, that's awesome. And some of you, you sing for Jesus, that's awesome. And some of you, you encourage for Jesus, that's awesome. Some of you, you write well, your words are just beautiful. Write and speak for Jesus. Stand to your feet this morning. This series on King David, having a heart after God's own heart, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life. I pray that as we continue, I pray that as we journey for the next few weeks and unpack the life of David, that you're going to see some different facets that maybe today you're in church and you think of David as the, the little shepherd boy, David and Goliath, or you think of David as the leader of his armies and, and going into battle and doing great, or, or like we're going to talk about soon, uh, David, the one who failed who failed as a man, had a moral failure, and yet had a heart after God's own heart because it didn't end there. And for some of you this morning, I want to tell you, you think your story has ended, but your story doesn't end here. But you choose here how your story ends. Speaking of eternity, hallelujah, it's not too late to get things right with God. It's not too late to go deeper with the Lord than you've ever gone before. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for what you're doing in our church. We thank you for these worshipers, for these awesome people of God. We thank you, Lord, that they haven't given up. I know that because they're here. We thank you, Lord, that they haven't thrown in the towel because they're still fighting. They're still working. They're still praying. They're still believing. And so, Father, I pray that as we delve into the life of David, that you would challenge us and that you would help us to go deeper, to stretch, that the next few weeks, are, they're going to stretch us. The next few weeks, as we look at the life of David, we're, we're going to be challenged in ways that we've never been challenged before, all because of your plan, your perfect plan for us. And so, God, touch every life. Touch every family, touch every person. Help us not to just let this be church for the sake of church or going through the motions, but help us, Lord, to be yours, all yours, your people with your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.